is the Dog and Bone. Welcome to this special edition of the Dog and Bone podcast. I'm your host, Martin Lote, founder and chairman of Propeller Group. I'm here to present to you curated takes, insights and tidbits from our latest event, Comms Club The Big Issues, which was aimed at PR and communications professionals. The inaugural virtual conference featured a heavy-hitting roster from the Corporate Affairs Director of the world's largest food and beverage company to a former White House Press Secretary. And in this episode, we'll give you a taster of all four panels. Our first panel of the day discussed how companies can communicate around purpose and profit. It featured Anna Lungley, Chief Sustainability Officer at Dentsu Global, and Julian McBride, who runs Global Media Relations and Communications at Accenture Interactive. Propeller Group's US Vice President, Mary Cirincioni, quizzed Anna and Julian on how to take a stance and effectively communicate it to stakeholders. What you've both told me is that purpose and profit can coexist, right? We've kind of made made that initial case there. But I think there's this broader question in, in what you were talking to, Julian, was this idea of needing to recognize what is shifting in terms of consumer sentiments and feelings, right? And then because of that, there's a need to shift that communication. So so that brings me to this question of, you know, can you own a stance, right, which prioritizes purpose and and communicate that to both employees and customers? So how do you how do you communicate that in a way that it's going to come across as intentional and not self-serving or not just kind of trying to you know, quickly scan the room and get a comment out there. Yeah. What is your currency in the conversation? What What is your relevance to that conversation? Do you need to take a stance? Is a stance warranted? You know, is it related clearly to your purpose? I think first is pausing and understanding what currency you have in whatever the topic or or or, or challenge is. Uh, you know, before you kind of take a stance. Just check your currency first as a company. What what currency and relevance do you have to that issue? I would build on that. And absolutely. And Mary, thank you for summarizing, summarizing our first point. I mean, the question about can you claim profit and purpose is a really interesting one. I'm actually in my role surprised it's ever debated because I think it is the only credible growth strategy. I think where organizations sometimes challenge, you know, sort of struggle is where they, they fail to understand um, that true value that they create. And I think that's what Julie talking about with currency. Um, We talk about climate change, biodiversity loss, rising inequality, all huge megatrends that are are impacting every organization in the world. Um, 90% of the world's um, countries have uh, net zero targets. That's influencing policy. Um, 59% of that change needs to come from human and societal behavior change. So we know we need to communicate and engage with consumers in different ways, and they're ready to engage. Some brands sometimes get that wrong by not really understanding the role, not in the not in the world that we live in today, but the role that they will play in that future society we have to create. And I think that's how you can really understand the true value. So when you're trying to communicate purpose, really do that forward thinking. What's the value that you create to society and the world? As Julian said, what is your currency? If you really understand that and you really understand those material opportunities, you'll be able to position yourselves in the minds of consumers in a way that is so much more relevant, engaging um, um, to their lives, more relevant to their lives. And it will drive new spaces for growth as well for an organization. So I think that's the sweet spot in terms of purpose and profit. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's making yourself relevant. 
I love that. Um, you know, and I think that kind of brings us into this idea of making the business case for purpose, right? So it's, you know, we know it matters to consumers increasingly so. We know that, um, you know, there's hardly a business out there that could sacrifice one for the other, right? You know, and so how do you, again, it, since we're all talking about communication here, how do you communicate that up and not just out, right? So how do you ensure that, um, you know, a fund manager doesn't seem to, 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 to miss the mark, right? Like how do you share and, and really um, talk about th- that business case for purpose in a way that people will get it? Well, from my perspective, I mean, it's, it's like any good communication strategy, you have to tailor it to your audience. If you're talking to the CFO of your business, if you're talking to a fund manager, then you need to be more financial than the audience. So really having those statistics at your fingertips. So for example, 50% of growth of consumer packaged goods in the last five years came from sustainable living products. There are loads of examples out there, but even in your own organization, you can talk about cost transformation in terms of reduction of energy. You can talk about talent attraction and retention. You can talk about brand and reputation, reach and impressions, um, you know, um, brand equity. So there's a business case that you can state um, to that financial audience. But if you're talking to HR, you can have a completely different conversation really related to the employee value proposition. So whether you're communicating internally or externally, just tailored to the audience. And when you're talking to consumers, I would say as well, is really break it down because sustainability purpose can be very, very complicated. It's quite jargon heavy. I think that's probably set us back years in terms of the climate crisis because people didn't really understand the proximity or what was important. So really breaking that down in terms of what it means to people today in their lives, again, being super relevant is really important. And speaking plain English, um, I think is always is always a top tip, I would say, in terms of communicating this agenda. I would totally agree, Anna. You know, translating, interpreting, and, and you know, codifying your message to your audience is very important, um, and keeping it human. Because at the end of the day, that fund manager is a person, that uh, HR representative is a person, the 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 your em- employees are people, right? So uh, you know interpreting your purpose that is that is relevant to them and what they are caring about and they they desire to understand from a company is is important i know as communicators we usually have you know blanket messages and and you know uh, we do a little bit of a well i don't want to say we do a little bit of it but we think about what's our angle for this audience or this audience. but we need to be really rigorous but also and this is the hard part is be sim- simple and, and clear and what we want our audiences to take away from, 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 you know, whether it's evangelizing a purpose or understanding a company's stance on an issue or uh, understanding what part of a journey a company is, is on as it relates to sustainability, IND and, and what have you. Our next panel featured a trio of distinguished company founders, including James Vincent of Founder, who was an advisor to Steve Jobs at Apple, Jason Kingsley, OBE, of the games company Rebellion Developments, and recent Dog and Bone guest Tamara Littleton of The Social Element. And as a founder myself, I stepped up to moderate this session, which explored how company bosses can find and communicate their leadership narrative. What would be your observation 
as as a senior advisor if you're working with a non-founder chief exec you know like a a, a FTSE 100 yeah. or a stock market listed career yeah. ceo they're not the founder but they've got to have a big persona um what would be your take on on whether that kind of ceo can adopt has the luxury of that kind of persona leadership style yeah we call them refounders martin i think that's probably the clearest way of saying it and so my question to them would be do you have license to if this company has gone astray and you're trying to put it back on a track and you're trying to refound we will go through the exercise as if you're a startup to refound this company so i'd have a conversation and say are you able to refound this company are you capable like not just capable but have you been given license to refound or are you just sitting there on top of a big company that is already a titanic and heading that way and you're just trying to make it look better because we're not very good in those situations because uh, you know i want to deal with someone that can then action something so i take the point positioning someone as a refounder may be a good way of getting the classic ceo back on that track coming back to to jason um i would love to talk a little bit about the kind of media channels for getting your message out there because you talked a bit earlier on about your your medieval knight uh, persona and interest being a, a great photo opportunity which it is but of course you've also got modern history youtube channel with nearly seven hundred thousand um subscribers so in terms of getting your message out there, is it easier for you to use your own media or to get involved in other people's media channels? What I find is that there's a very big disconnect between what we might think of as traditional media and new sort of online media, um, certainly in my personal experience. So one example is I, I, I was covered by um, Sunday Times, got a two page sort of analysis and, and it was really interesting and a lot of people read it. But it had zero effect on any of the analytics and data flow that I had got from my social media, which I thought was interesting. So I would say don't assume that getting good coverage in one form of media equates to any kind of coverage in another form of media. Um, they're very different. It's also very interesting how immediate you can be on social media. So I talk direct to my fans uh, in social media without any intermediary kind of slightly skewing what I've said in an interview. I'm quite keen on live interviews with journalists because it's much harder for them to fit what you say into an agenda. They can obviously ambush you with the difficult questions. And that's something I'm, I'm always aware of. The, the easy questions come first. As you get towards the end of the time allotted, there's often the opportunity for people to throw in more difficult questions or questions that are harder to field. Um, so just be very aware that that's a, a, a perfectly legitimate technique. But I mean, that's what journalists are supposed to do. They're supposed to ask you awkward questions and get good answers from them. That's literally their job or should be. Um, so so I would say media is, is quite a broad topic, really. And they're not necessarily overlapping in any way that you might suspect. As you made that point about fielding difficult questions, I did want to quickly um, zip across to James because we were talking earlier and you were telling me a real live example of one of your clients getting ready for difficult questions and how you you basically turn that to advantage. Social media doesn't always have the best uh, reputation and Snapchat was sort of lumped in with all the other sort of bad guys like, oh, bad things happen on social media. And so Facebook, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, it's just all a bunch of waste of time and people posting and whatever, right? Evan and I went uh, for a walk on the beach because that's how he likes to walk, uh, work, which is just a leadership thing. I said to Evan at the beginning, we need to get you out of the department of lying to strangers and put you in the department of truth to friends, right? 
So we started doing a whole bunch of things and we worked together for two years. The story was um, Evan was about to speak at Recode, right? And this was 2018, maybe. I got word that Evan was coming on just before Sheryl Sandberg, right? So Snapchat and then Facebook. I said, look, one thing and you must like, please, just if there's only one thing you do tomorrow, you're going to get a question. And here's the question. How do you feel, Evan, about the fact that Facebook, Instagram, stole your IP and called it Instagram stories. And I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, it's fine. Like, good for them. You know, we'll come up with something else. Good luck to them. You know, they, they got 800 million new users and Snapchat was stuck at 200 million. So this is like, you know, existential crisis. Like, they stole your IP, right? And all I'd like you to say is, I wish they'd steal my policy on privacy. That was the headline the next day. Evan Spiegel says, I wish Facebook would steal their policy on privacy. What is their policy? Everybody went to look at what their policy was, which actually turned out to be far better. They expunge all the data every six months. They don't sell it to, you know, Russian hackers or whatever, you know, Cambridge Analytica or all that nonsense. You know, they don't like force you to stay on there by, you know, handing you off to QAnon and trying to see if they can't like be more controversial to keep you on the platform. All the nasty things that Facebook does or whatever the new name is that I refuse to use. Anyway, with that moment, he was able to do the strategic thing that we decided to do, which we did through a communication campaign, but that was a big headline and everybody read it. And then everybody went off and said, let's go have a look at Snapchat and see why are they different? Oh, oh, they're different because they're small, because it's real, because they have a privacy policy. And so that was just a very quick shift um, in narrative and taking opportunity of a question and turning it around to your advantage. It's a it's a great example, and I'm hoping that the comms professionals listening on the comms club will will, will note that that when you have a client um, who might say, "Well, I'm going to just say this," have a think about how it could be turned around and how you can steal the steal the headline um, with a comment like that. What's your prescription and tips for how to get the best out of the communications people working for you? Well, I think the first thing is that it's not about me. Uh, we've just talked about a lot of it, you know, being the sort of pushing the founder, et cetera. But it's so important to get key people in your company with their own profile, their own opinions. And, uh, and you know, you want lots of voices in the agency. I have a good relationship with the, uh, with the people on my team at, at Propeller who are able to sort of come up with ideas of how I can be inserted into the story. So it's a very proactive approach to getting our, our name out there. And also, I think it's just a collaboration with the team. So we have a, a great team uh, writing sort of content internally that's more sort of around what's going on in, in social media and the industry that links up to our, our PR plan. Um, and then it's trying to get me out and about and, you know, uh, speaking or opinions, et cetera. So, it's it takes uh, it takes a village, I would say, but it's all about the uh, the relationship between um, us and and uh, Propeller, who are fabulous, I would say, Martin. Um, but it's it's also about just constant. It's like drip feed. So I spend so much time. So as well as the sort of the you know the uh, PR and and trying to sort of get our name out there and and media relations, etc. My iPhone is constantly telling me that I do about sort of six hours on my phone um, above and beyond my my laptop. And that's because I'm actually just on LinkedIn every day um, and, and Twitter. And I think, you know, obviously I'm going to say this because I run a social media agency, but social media is absolutely critical to uh, to getting, um, you know, the, your profile raised and um, 
and you know leading to relationships with potential clients as well. Our third panel of the day was on the topic of how comms professionals can achieve boardroom buy-in for PR pushes. Not always the easiest thing to do. The panel featured Christina Massina, Global Affairs Director for Nestle UK and Ireland, and Dr. Lashonda Eady, Assistant Professor of Public Relations at Penn State University. Propeller Group's Director of Clients and Strategy, Rose Bentley, moderated this discussion. I just want to also just think then about the kind of um, the ambition, um, the kind of long-term ambition that always excites us um, uh, in terms of comms versus the short-term targets or even, you know, the the short-term crises that bowl in and take us off, take us off course. Um, and, you know, there's been you know, a fair few things happening in the world that have contributed to <clears throat> that short-termism um, or that need to be short-term or perhaps knee-jerk. Um, but how do you navigate? How as how as comms professionals can you can you navigate through that um, and keep that balance right? Um, Lashonda, what are your thoughts here? Well, firstly, assuming that you are or that you do as the comm leader have a seat at the table, then you should be able to have those conversations um, with your colleagues in the boardroom uh, to say, you know, yes, this does seem like. Uh, an immediate or imminent threat. And this is my assessment of it and why I think either A, we do need to, you know, um, dedicate resources to this in the short term or B, these are the reasons that we don't. And I think that um, it's good to uh, think about both the the immediate and the long term as well, because you really can't be solely focused on either because it can be very dangerous. And so I think um, making sure that there's kind of this constant conversation of thinking about the uh, or weighing the the pros and cons and balancing, um, you know, what considerations are on the table in the short term and the long term is really kind of what needs to happen. And so there's the element of of proactivity but I guess you can't always be proactive can you Christina? No and uh, I mean those are really difficult time for leaders to navigate I have to say and uh, I think many of us have gone through crisis I know Lashonda you're an expert in in debt but many of us have gone through crisis in the past I think what is really different now is on one side uh, you know, the length, the, inten the intensity of the crisis, but also, frankly, the unpredictability of how long it's going to last and of the future, to be honest. So I think what I see once again with my stakeholders and with my leaders is that when a crisis hits, there is, uh, you know, I think there is an immediate response and therefore, you know, there is quite immediately uh, a desire and a need to act and to act with decisiveness. You know, sometimes the challenge that we have is exactly what you said, Lashonda, it's reminding ourselves, even, you know, us as communication professionals that want to fix everything and immediately, it's just to remind ourselves that, you know, at the end of the day, we are here for the long run, at least in my case, you know, in, in the case of a company like the one I work for that has been around for more than 150 years, it's about doing the right thing now, but also projecting yourself for the future and for the long term is not uh, a balance that is very easy uh, to uh, strike all the time. But I think it is important that we try to detach ourselves and look at, our, look at the situation with more objectivity, thinking about, okay, how do I solve the issue today? But how do I preserve 
the business, the reputation, my way of communicating my values, my purpose for the long term. And, and I also do think at the same time, there's kind of an education that we as comms people also um, have to do with our counterparts that may not understand the landscape the same. Just because X number of users are mad on a platform about maybe a problem with the app, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, we're going to open up the war room and that we have to go into full crisis mode because really what we need to do is stop first and see what actually is the issue that's being raised. And oftentimes that could be, um, you know, an operational issue or a customer service issue. And so I think that as communicators, we have a really unique role in helping the organization really focus in and hone in on what the issue is. And also sometimes helping there not be an alarm about something that's not necessary, but also emphasizing the fact that in those types of cases, if it isn't handled appropriately, then yes, it can actually um, escalate into a crisis where we will be going um, in the war room. And so I think that having those conversations in and out of crisis, especially outside of it, is really helpful as well so that when it happens, then everybody can feel that much more confident and comfortable knowing that, well, you know, let's take a step back and see what we really are dealing with here. And I think social media amplifies that so much more that if you're not savvy and knowledgeable, you will see that and say, oh, my gosh, you know, the building's on fire. But really, no, it's not. What a brilliant point, LaShonda, is absolutely critical what you said i think sometimes we also have it's true sometimes i think we play the role of accelerator in a way to say okay this is what can happen please let's let's act decide with with uh, you know quite bold action but on the other side a lot of the time we have to really play that role of mirror and saying okay it looks like the house is on fire, as you rightly described it. But in reality, let's put this into perspective. You know, it might be uh, maybe a social media post that is getting some traction. It might be a, a press article that is putting pressure on us as an organization or as leaders, but maybe the broader context is different. So that ability to put things into perspective, I think is also very, very crucial. The final panel of the day was a real humdinger as we got a peek inside the communications machine in the White House. Eric Schultz, the former Deputy Press Secretary to President Obama, was interviewed by Propellers Director of Partnerships, Ben Titchmarsh. Listen in as Eric explained what it's like to handle media for the leader of the free world and operate on a truly global stage. Now that's what I call pressure. Dealing with pressure is something that we all discuss, I think, more. And I think one of the silver linings of lockdown has been people being more honest. But if you think about pressure and you think about pressure in comms, if I'm ever stressed out, I think, well, thank God I'm not Deputy Press Secretary at the White House. <laughs> um, you weren't afforded that luxury. So I just want to picture the scene, guys. You're under the lights. You've got the presidential seal behind you. You can see the assembled press corps for the press conference and the journalists can ask you a question on any topic under the sun. Now, I know that you guys carry on, on to stage a very big sort of booklet that you can flip to um, Wyoming's dairy policy or policy on a big topic. But how the hell did you prepare for that moment when you, you have to, after a light introduction, say, 
I will now take your questions. And I really hope this isn't bringing back too many memories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very triggering right now. Uh, look, I, you, you've been very gracious, but the truth is it was an honor of a lifetime. And I, I had always dreamed of getting to the White House, but I never actually thought I would. Uh, and, you know, you're right. It is a, there, there's not a lot of margin for error, right? I think a lot of people make fun of sort of political speak because it, it can be very anodyne and, and sort of vanilla and carefully worded language. But the truth is you do have to be careful because what you say from that podium can move stock markets, it can mobilize armies, it can tick off your allies. And uh, and we viewed, we, we took that role seriously. Uh, you're right, we walk up with a binder and that's after a few hours every day of practicing. The truth is uh, that guidance that we, we use is not just me or the presidency, Josh Ernest or whoever um, sort of speaking off the cuff or what we want to say, but, but because when you speak from the podium, you're speaking for the entire administration or, or the country on the, on the world stage, it, it can't just be, you know, the, the press team thinking about how we want to answer something. So it, it's the product of an interagency process, a, a pretty robust uh, system where, you know, take anything like in, in 2016, when, when uh, we, we uh, negotiated the Paris Climate Accord, right? That, that's not just us answering questions. We have to make sure what we say is consistent with what the State Department's saying, what the EPA is saying, what the Department of Energy is saying, what our, our legislative team who works with Capitol Hill is saying. We have to make sure that's consistent with what the lawyers are thinking. We have to make sure the people who deal with the climate groups, the outside activists, have, have, are, are read into what we're saying and how we're messaging something. So when we go up to that podium, it encompasses all of those equities, all of that guidance, yeah. um, which sounds like a lot of work, and it is. But the benefit of that, and I happen to be an evangelist for the press briefing, I think there's always ways to sort of update it. but. I think it's an important stake in the ground for democracy. I think, like you said, sort of having the president's, having the, one of the president's top advisors go live on camera for yeah. an hour, answer questions from, from journalists on anything they want to talk about is an important sort of signal that we send around the world that yeah. we, about holding ourselves accountable. The truth is it's also in our interest because it's a very easy way to speak with one voice and let everyone know what the president's position is. Yeah. And so you can immediately signal to embassies, to military leaders, to senators, to governors, to state legislators, to anyone listening, uh, what, what the White House position is on something. And when you work for sort of the largest um, human enterprise on the planet, the United States federal government, that can be tricky. And so using that briefing room as a device to get your message out is uh, it was one of the tools we relied on. And it sends a very powerful message, and I think it's very pertinent today, that scrutiny by media is so important for democracies. The moment that you, and, and actually that's a very helpful way for comms people to reframe it mentally, you know, to be more stoical about it, to understand this comes with the job. This is what I signed up for. You know? <laughs> um, just talking about crises though, you know, all organizations, all companies, I'm afraid that they will all have to deal with times of crises, big and small. But when you're in the, the eye of the storm, when you really need to stay level-headed, when you need to not make mistakes, I remember Eric, when we've spoken previously, you've given me advice here. What, what advice would you give? Yeah, I, 
my sort of orientation on all this, which could be ironic for people who know me well, uh, is to try and be the adult in the room that things will be moving so fast and so vigorously. And a lot of the information can be chaotic and unverified, but you want to be um, seen as credible, empathetic, transparent. And the moment that you start to sort of get uh, swept up in the swirl is I think you run a real risk of sort of losing your stature and losing your standing in the middle of a story. That can be hard because the press or Twitter or reporters or, you know, sort of the cycle around you can be moving breathlessly, waiting for answers and responses. But I think sort of being the calm adult in the room in the midst of sort of a chaotic frenzy can ultimately serve you well. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't sort of be responsive from the outset. And sometimes that's just sort of like a high level value statement uh, before you know the nitty gritty facts. But staying true to your values and staying true to, you know, what you know to be absolutely verified factually are, I think, the first steps towards um, towards getting through, you know, one, one of those tough times. You also gave me the advice that you should never set a certain time frame on resolving the issue, which is at the center of the crisis, because an eagle-eyed journalist will say, well, you've said you're going to sort this out within one year. Let me mark it in our diary. Often there can be a sense in crisis comms, it's a human instinct, you want breathing space, you just want to get this thing out the way. But if you're playing the long game, you really have to kind of look at not delaying problems and in so doing magnifying them. So I'm just interested if you've got any sort of live examples of how you approach that in your job. I'm just fascinated. Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the hardest times for us in the White House was in 2014, when the Affordable Care Act was getting implemented, this was the president's signature, you know, Obamacare signature of accomplishment, um, something that we had worked very hard on, and we had several years to get ready. Uh, and we had trumpeted this forthcoming website named healthcare.gov. And we had sort of done a bunch of presentations and media and press and sort of talked to anyone who would listen about how great this was going to be and it was going to be fast and easy and simple. And we're going to restore confidence in how government can do things. And the day we went live, it didn't work. It, you know, no matter what we threw at the press, you know, oh, Sylvia from Milwaukee just signed on. Go, go, go cover that. You know, nobody had it. And, you know, CNN's doing their countdown clock about how long the website's down for, and it's just this breathless nonstop coverage, uh, un unrelenting on, on how this could have gotten screwed up. It, the, the president realized that um, that this wasn't a communications issue, it was just an issue. And, um, and you know, what we did was we sent over a SWAT team over to the Department of Health and Human Services to fix this. And we bunched a bunch of Silicon Valley technology people to just throw everything we had at this. And we were transparent with the press. And, and we, I think we did sort of weekly briefings where we got very technical in terms of sort of how many servers are now up and running and getting fixed and what are the next steps we've got to do uh, and what are the next benchmarks we're hoping to hit throughout the process. Um, and eventually we relaunched. But that was a real moment for me to realize that not only do you have to be credible and empathetic, but you've also got to be clear about what you're doing to fix the problem. And, and I think if you're able to sort of feed the beast with that material, you, you'll get out of this much faster. Of course, it was also labeled socialism, which was hilarious to any Brits with the NHS. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah.
care healthcare, but that's a story for another time. Thank you for tuning in to this special edition of The Dog and Bone. I hope you found plenty of actionable insights from our inaugural Comms Club event. If you would like to find out more about the event or join the Comms Club for PR professionals, you can visit the website and sign up to our community on the Guild platform over at www.commsclubcommunity.com. You can also find links to the full panel videos on YouTube in the show notes to this podcast. And do please leave a like or a rating or even subscribe to the podcast to help us spread the word.